And so if you'll open your Bibles to Philippians 4, we've been doing this series through from September, and today is the last day. By the way, if you have a sermon series you would like to think about, like me to think about, please let me know. I've been pondering the possibility of doing Daniel, but then, then I get into my right mind and think otherwise. And so, but it's a possibility that Daniel may show up in January, I don't know. But if you have something else that would get me out of hot water, then perfect. Let me know if you have some other suggestions. And so we're going to open our Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 4. And um, out of reverence, we're going to start at verse 2, because we did verse 1 the last time we met. So starting with verse 2 to the end of the chapter, out of reverence for God's Word as it is read, please join me by standing. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The peace of God will guard your hearts, verse 7. The God of peace will be with you, verse 9. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and at, now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of need, being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, your Son's saving humility and obedience draws us up into your life and love. Help us. As we look at Paul's words here, help us that these will be a means of grace to us and that we will become means of grace to our brothers and sisters for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. 
So some years ago, I was asked to review a book. Amazing. Oh, wait, I do a lot of reviews. Anyway, so it even says advanced reader copy. So this was like before it became published. Uh, it was a delightful little book. It's written by uh, Joshua Cooley, Cooley, who's a veteran sports writer. He compiled this book called The Biggest Win, Pro Football Players Tackle Faith. It's, a, it's an ideal little book, especially on, on how to be a Christian athlete. That's the focus of the book. And in it, he interviews several of the Christian players who were on the Philadelphia Eagles team after they won the, the Super Bowl. That was in early 2018. So he, he interviews all of them. In one of the chapters, the reason why I bring this up, because it deals with this passage, in one of the chapters, he's interviewing two of the team players who you may remember their names, Trey Burton and Nick Foles. You might remember those names. He's interviewing them both about how their teammates ended up misusing Philippians 4, verse 13 at the Super Bowl. So, both Burton and Foles, they actually explain the passage, Philippians 4, specifically verses 10 through 13. They do a really good job explaining the passage correctly, but they note how many of their fellow athletes, quote, use Bible verses like Philippians 4, 13, like it's some sort of mystical spell for success, end of quotation. For example, several of our teammates uh, would write Philippians 4.13, just the reference, on their shoestrings before the Super Bowl began that day. They, they just put it on there like it was a talisman of some kind. My friends, as we look at Philippians 4 in its broader context, starting from verse 2 to the very end, in this healthier context, it should, it should help us to not fall into similar traps. And so the points are listed on the back of your worship guide there. They're not, uh, I couldn't do the A sentence. I tried and couldn't find anything, so I just went plain, just plain and simple. And then this, this afternoon I added a fifth point. So there you go. I'm a preacher, I can do that. So the first one is unity. It's verses 2 and 3. Now we finally have arrived at the very reason for the letter of Paul to the Philippians. It's right here. In fact, I want you to notice how many times does Paul say, I entreat. It's right there in verse 2. And he's very specific who he's entreating. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche. That's pretty phenomenal when you start having repetition. And then there's a synonymous statement when he gets further and talks to this true companion, whoever that is, he says, yes, I ask you also. So he's saying it three times. Now, if you were in a movie theater and Joanne stood up, stood up in the movie theater and said, fire, everybody's going to kind of do what? 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 Yeah, what? What? But if Joanne gets up and goes, fire, 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 everybody's going to do what? Panic! But whatever, right? You know this is legit, right? Paul says, I entreat, I entreat, I ask you three times. You know this is big stuff. He really has had this on the brain or on his heart since the very first verse of the first chapter. And so he says, um, he doesn't say it once, he doesn't say it twice, but he says it three times here. The emphasis tells you how significant this is. I entreat, I beg you, is the Greek word. I beg you, Euodia. I beg you, Syntyche. Agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. That language, none of this is throwaway stuff. In the Lord. 
I, I beg you to agree because you are both united to Christ. I beg you because you both belong to Christ. I beg you because you also, in Christ, belong to each other as Christ's very own. I beg you, he says. And then he goes on to invite the true companion, the ESV translates this, that in the Greek, that true companion could actually be the fellow's name, which would be Syzygus, and some of your translations may actually have Syzygus there instead of true companion. Either way, we're not sure, so it works either way, right? And so he, he uh, calls upon him, invites this other person to come in and become part of this reuniting work. And the rationale is that they, along with, verse 3, along with Clement and along with the others, have all in the past labored together. They have all together in the past sweat together. They have all together in the past toiled together in Christ's cause. And they are, notice what he says at the end of verse 3, they are, not maybe, not might be, they are all listed in Christ's book of life. How could they be at odds? You get the point? That is this, really the, the, the aim of this whole letter right here. I don't know if this is in your sermon notes. I forgot, don't know if I put this in there, but there's a quotation from Sinclair Ferguson from his little book, Let's Study Philippians. And he puts it this way. How can two people who think differently be brought to think in the same way? by remembering that they are both in the Lord. They are His, not their own. They are both His. Their Lord made Himself nothing, did not grasp at His rights. He took the role of a servant, chapter 2, 6-7. In the Lord, they were called to follow His example in their relationships with one another. In a quotation. I think that's very significant. Jesus, chapter 1, verse 27 through 211 is the heart of this whole letter. And so I think Sinclair Ferguson is correct. When he says, when, when Paul says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord, he's emphasizing, you belong to Jesus, who was outward facing and gave himself and didn't stand on his rights. <clears throat> right? Didn't do that. He gave himself. And we're to do the same for one another which fits with other things that Paul has said in Philippians. And so the work of God's grace is meant to enable us to stand one another and to stand with one another. The work of God's grace is meant to enable us to stand one another and to stand with one another. Now I use that phrase, I've used it through this whole series very pointedly and very specifically because in our normal flesh, we don't like people we can't stand. You know what I mean? We don't hang out with people we can't stand. But notice what the gospel does. Notice what Jesus does. He pulls together people that he, maybe in his good days, shouldn't stand, right? But he stands. He can stand us by grace. And so he draws us in and he says, and he brings us into his embrace and he says, okay, stand with one another, stand one another, and stand with one another. It's a picture, it's a sign, it's a proclamation, it's a sermon of God's gospel grace in Jesus Christ. 
And so then, one way for the Euodias and Syntyches of Christ's church throughout the ages to agree in the Lord then, verse 4 through 9, is joy. Joy, verses 4 through 9. So it begins with rejoice in the Lord always. This is where I'm getting joy from. And joy is a, an important theme in Philippians. And so I'm mentioning it as the point, but really what Paul gives us here is a list of four themes. Joy, verse 4. Reasonableness. Let your reasonableness, reasonableness appear to everyone. Reasonableness, verse 5. Verse 6 through 7, anxiety-reducing prayer. Anxiety-reducing prayer. And lastly, verses 8 through 9, healthy thinking. Healthy thinking. All of this fits in. It all works together hand in glove to help the Yodias and Syntyches to agree in the Lord. Here's what I mean. Every one of those things is outward focused. The joy, rejoice in the Lord always. It's not an internal thing. You're doing it externally. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness appear to everyone. And when, you, when you're anxious, go in prayer. Thanksgiving, supplication, all those things. Pray, and the God of peace uh, and the peace of God will guard your hearts, etc. And have healthy thinking. Think on these things. All of these things are to get you out of your head and to get you actually looking in a different direction. You ever notice that when you are the most hurt, where do you usually spend most of your time when you're hurt most? In your head. You know what I'm talking about? You recite the scene all over again, validating, justifying why you deserve to be hurt and why the other person is wrong and by Jiminy's, they need to agree with me and they need to come to me. And we rehearse, 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 rehearse. And Paul says, stop that nonsense. Rejoice in the Lord, would you? Let your reasonableness appear to everyone. And is this bugging you so much that you're anxious? Well, get on your knees and pray. And then start thinking healthy thoughts. Whatever he says there in verse, uh, verse 8 and 9. Whatever's honorable. Whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, and so forth. Get out of your head for goodness sake and be outward facing. And so the outward focus is very significant. Recently I read a book and reviewed it. It's out there. The review is it was written by a guy by the name of John Andrew Bryant. And John Andrew Bryant chronicles his mental and emotional, the mental and emotional hurricane that he has lived through. He has some serious mental health issues. And he chronicles them in this book. He's lived through this emotional and mental hurricane. Um, most of the book is spent with John Andrew Bryant in his head. <laughs> most of the book is spent in his head. That's really weird. But it's interesting. I mean, it's intriguing. It's really been helpful to read the book. But it's spent inside of his head, hearing the voices he hears, hearing the accusations he hears, hearing the mental bullies, the internal mental bullies and tyrants he hears that are demanding and demeaning and damning, and then to feel how those have roped his body into his troubles. For all of that, the magic moment comes towards the end of the book. He's not restored, he's not in full mental health, but he looks like he's getting better, but the magic moment slowly comes it's a slow recovery, and it begins to start when he starts, when he starts to get out of his head, and he starts for the first time 
to think about his wife in spite of the voices in his head, in spite of the anxiousness that his body is screaming at him and his head is screaming at him, he actually begins to think about his wife um, instead of getting into the raging going on in his head and his body. And then it slowly gets bigger. He finally, towards the end of the book, begins to attend to his nephew. And then he finally is able to attend to his aging 70-something-year-old parents. And that's how he puts it at the end. Finally, for the first time, I became an uncle to my nephews and a son to my father and my mother. And you can just tell in the book, oh, he has turned a huge, significant corner. Why do I bring all of that up? Because Paul is inviting us to do the same exact thing. To take on the same self-giving disposition that was in our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, 27-211. He who was God Himself did not consider it a thing to be flaunted about, but, but made Himself of no reputation. He took upon Himself the form of a servant. He humbled Himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why? It was for us and for our salvation. And the Father exalted Him, gave Him a name above all names. Yes, all those things. But the Gospel should turn us around for we have the same self-giving disposition and we get out of our heads. And so then, my friends, when it comes to adversity and anxiousness and discord in the church, a huge step, Paul is saying here, a huge step out of it is to step into joy and that is really an outward-facing position like our Lord Jesus. And so all that Paul says here would foster restored unity between Euodia and Syntyche if they could get out of their heads and their offendedness and all of how they've been treated so wrongly by her and how she's so miserably mean to me. And oh, my, wow. They can get out of that and go, oh, well, that's how we treated Jesus. Oh, and what did Jesus do? Oh, he gave himself for us anyways. Oh. So I need to love her and give myself to her. As they are able to do that, then it begins to grow this restoration of partnership, koinonia, fellowship. And all of this helps then to lead to the next trait, which is contentment. And contentment would be a huge part of bringing the Yodias and Syntikes to come to agree in the Lord. Contentment will be a huge part in helping the Yodias and Satike to come to agree in the Lord. And that's verses 10 through 13. Now, 10 through 13 is probably, at least verses 10 through 12, is probably the one section of Philippians that many people quietly revolt against. Because <laughs> it's learning how to be content in whatever condition I'm in. If I don't have any food, I can be content. Or if I'm wealthy, content. I can be content here, here, here. And nobody wants to talk about that. Most, most people don't want to talk about it. No, it's all health and wealth. I don't need to be content. I need to be wealthy and rich and healthy. You know what I'm saying? It's the one section that people like to revolt against and ne by never bringing it up and never really delving into it. The reason I say that, it's almost every, uh, that, that almost everyone bypasses 10 through 12 uh, and immediately goes straight to verse 13 out of its context that's what I'm trying to get at. They actually go straight to verse 13 and they take verse 13 and they plaster it on every event that they are involved in, such as the Super Bowl or cross-country races. I imagine there's probably one or two that probably put those on their shoestrings without you knowing about it, Dave. 
you know, cross-country races or business ventures. I have heard businessmen say, I can do this because I can do all things through Christ. What are you talking about? Right? There's not a sense of contentment. It's over achievement and all these other things. I can do all things through Christ. And we use it to, to boost us up as we go ask for pay raises. Put all, whatever you want to put in there. We often bypass verses 10 through 12 to get to verse 13 and take it out of his context. But notice that Paul's whole point, I think, is rightly displayed in the Westminster Shorter Catechism as it explains the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet. Right? And so the Shorter Catechism asks, what does the Tenth Commandment require and what does it forbid? And listen to these words. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment required the full contentment with our own condition, with a right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. A right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Well, what's forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Really powerful statement. Let me tell you a little story. So we were in Jackson, Mississippi. I was uh, still in the Air Force. I was recruiting medical professionals. I had to recruit doctors and pharmacists and biomedical technicians and public health officers. I had to recruit a whole bunch of people, dentists even too. And my office partner only had to recruit nurses. Well, this was in a season when the hospitals were treating nurses Horribly, this happens, right? These little cycles like this. They were treating nurses horribly, and so lo and behold, my office partner just sat in his office because nurses were driving from all over the state of Mississippi to come see him, and they were just flowing into his office. I was beating my head against the wall, trying to just get one doctor to talk to me. Would you please talk to me? No, I don't want to talk to you. You don't have any money. Right, so it's just frustrated for a year and a half, I worked with him, and he's over there, just sitting there, and here come all these nurses, and I'm trying to get somebody to come pay attention to me. I was so upset with him. I was envious. I was envious of him. Well, it just so happened I was taking classes at Reformed Theological Seminary, and one of the th- requirements at Reformed Theological Seminary is that we had to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So I was at that place where I was working through the Tenth Commandment. I used to take my memory card while I was out running. Don't do this, Dave. But I was out running, going through my memory cards. And I'm going over the Tenth Commandment. I went, full contentment of my own estate, not envious or grieving of my neighbor's success. Oh, man, I had to stop running. And I'm going, dear God, I have really messed up. So I went to my office partner. His name was Greg, who only went to church when it was softball season. That was a joke between me and him. And I said to Greg, I said, Greg, I am really sorry. I have been envious of your success. Why are you telling me that? Uh, well, so let me tell you what I've been doing. So I went through the catechism cards, and he's going, what? I said, I just want you to know. I've been envious, and I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Uh, he didn't know what to do with that. Anyways, there was a magic moment in my head recognizing how discontent is raging in our hearts very often. If you cannot give thanks to God for the success of your competitor, you're a discontent person. Right? Actually enjoying the fact that they're being successful. Your office partner, your neighbor, 
instead of keeping up with the Joneses, give thanks that the Joneses got what they got. Right? Okay. Enough of that. And that's the idea that Paul is after here. He's using himself as a role model of contentment. He's like, Whatever situation I've been in, I've learned the secret of being content because I can do all things. Contentment. Contentment through Christ who strengthens me. Think of how contentment would make it far easier for God's people to learn to stand with one another, to stand one another, and to stand with one another as we grow in contentment. But Paul now wraps up the letter and brings, starts to bring it to a close where he began actually reminding them of and thanking them for their partnership. And it's verses 14 to the end of the chapter. The whole section here is focused upon the financial aspect of their partnership, how the Philippians had made Paul a common cause. At one point, Euodia and Syntyche had also made Paul a common cause. So you know that he's actually still thinking about them as he talks about this. They had pooled together their resources and they supported him. But notice that in this closing section, Paul is actually drawing us back to what he began this letter with. Back in chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 6 and so forth, where this is a partnership, a koinonia, a fellowship in the gospel, as he says in chapter 1, verse 5, and it's a partnership that is brought about by the grace of God and that where we flourish by the ongoing work of God, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. So whenever you quote verse 6, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. It's true about anything that God has done in our lives. But Paul is specifically talking about koinonia. I am confident that he who began the good work of koinonia, a partnership in you, will complete it until the day of Christ. Fellowship and unity is, the grace, is by the grace and goodness of God. And that's where Paul's at. And then this partnership, as you come here to the end of the book, of the letter, uh, shows up in a very tangible way. They gave, and they gave together for his benefit. It's almost as if Paul is saying, and here I'm paraphrasing, by God's given and growing grace, you Philippians joined hands, and you joined purses, and you joined debit cards together to keep me financially afloat. Others couldn't do it or wouldn't do it. Whatever the case, you did it. Thank you. And you did it more than once so that I could focus on the gospel work of birthing and building a church in Thessalonica. That's verse 16. And he goes on to say, what you gave me, verse 18, you gave was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Interesting, we still have sacrifices in the new covenant. Right? It's not bloody sacrifices, but what we give. Sunday morning, when we give Sunday morning, think about that. This is an offering to you. That's how Paul's putting it. When you give, don't give because you're trying to keep the church afloat, but that helps, trust me. Right? You give because you love God, you're grateful for the gospel of grace, and give as a sacrifice. You, you want to rejoice in Him, and this is part of rejoicing in Him. Does that make sense? That's how Paul puts it here. Now, money and fundraising can cause a lot of heartburn, if you don't know that. It can cause a lot of heartburn, and the one who's doing the fundraising, I was, was hoping Wes was going to be able to be here. He's at Album. He just got done with Album. Hoping to pick on Wes. 
Wes could tell you about the heartburn that comes with fundraising, right? Fundraising could cause heartburn both for the fundraiser and those who are giving funds. I appreciate then Paul's little sentence in verse 17, because it is beautiful and it is helpful. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I seek your benefit. I mean, that statement, verse 17, fits in with his stated life purpose that he said clear back in chapter 1, verse 25 and 26. Chapter 1, verse 25 and 26, Paul said this. Convinced of this, convinced that I will not stay in prison forever and will finally be released. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, for your progress and joy in the faith. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It just fits in. Verse chapter 4, 17 fits in so well with his stated life purpose of how he focused on what is worthless. And so there's partnership. Here's the fifth point that I just added, and it's the last little bits. It's the last few verses of Philippians 4. Paul ties up the ribbons on this letter, so to speak, and, but even here, in these final words, he is still addressing the rift between Euodia and Syntyche. As well, he's also addressing an issue that might have been, had, um, have been a significant bit of news for the church that was living in this highly patriotic pro-Rome city. So here's how he's definitely dealing with Euodia and Syntyche. Notice he says in verse 21 and 22, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Every saint, everyone who has been made holy, that's what saint means, one of God's holy ones, everyone who has been made holy in Christ Jesus. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Do you hear the, the all part here again? The every part? Just like he began this letter. I pray for you all, right? You all, you all, he constantly was saying that at the very beginning. He's back at it again because he wants the audience and Dick to pick this up. Oh, yeah, it's to be about all of us together. Notice what he's driving at. Don't just greet your favorite church members. Don't just greet your own personal posse in the parish. Three Ps there, I worked at that really long. Okay, Your personal posse in the parish. Greet instead, greet all the saints. Yodia, greet Syntyche. That's what he's driving at. Syntyche, greet Yodia. Greet all the ones whom Christ has made holy or made holy by Christ. The saints, those here where I am now, they even send their greetings to you. All of them. So notice that unity then in the local congregation begins to build outwards, is meant to begin to build outwards to other congregations, beginning to knit us all together. But then Paul is also addressing some news that would have been very important to this, highly patriotic, uh, to this church in a highly patriotic Roman city. It gives the church and it gives Paul some street cred, as they would say, and it's the rest of verse 21 and 22. Let me go back and read it again. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Right? That's what he says early on in chapter 1 when he says, yeah, the gospel's being preached. Even some of the Praetorian guard in Caesar's household is hearing the gospel. Woo! Which would have been big news for the church in this pro-Rome, 
patriotic city. So he's going to end this letter reminding them one more time, yeah, even some of the Christians in Caesar's household were not that weird after all. Even some of Caesar's household is coming in. Big news. So Paul, on the other side of this, is that Paul was not an insurrectionist, no matter what might have been stated on the local social media or the Fox News or MSNBC of his day. Even Caesar's household is coming in to the kingdom of Christ. And so these believers would be able then to face their neighbors with some decent news. Yeah, did you know there's some Christians even in Caesar's household who are not unpatriotic? And then the letter concludes, and it concludes with that benediction at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, sometimes we read that stuff and we think those are just throwaway lines. It's just wonderful Jesus talk or pablum or whatever we want to call it. But it's not meaningless. It's not a throwaway line. Remember, it takes the grace, this is what it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It takes the grace of Christ for us to be able to do what Paul called us to do back in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So remember, that's part of the heart of the letter. Chapter 1, 27 and 28. Let your citizenship, or, or, or uh, let your, uh, uh, only let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. You stand firm in one spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Do you get it? Okay. So my friends, as we end our time in Philippians, remember, God's judgment brings division among His people. It brings division among nations. God's judgment brings division. God's grace brings koinonia. It brings partnership. It brings unity. The question for us to ask as we end this letter here at the end of Philippians is this. Are we part of the remedy or are we part of the ongoing disease? Are we reaching out by God-given grace to help knit God's people together? Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for Paul's letter to the Philippians. We read it, we read about Yodia and Syntyche, and we think, sometimes we're tempted to think, well, that was then. We don't have anything like that now. But Lord, You look around us and You see the great danger that we are in by our multiple divisions. We pray that Your grace that brings unity, that brings partnership in Jesus Christ, that brings unity in truth, would just prevail over us and in our lives. May we continue to be drawn and knit together in Christ Jesus. Day in and day out, agreeing in the Lord. May we walk outward facing with joy and reasonableness and anxiety reducing prayer and healthy thinking. May we learn to be content, which also comes by Your grace, because contentment comes through Christ who strengthens us. May we, Lord, be cheered 
to throw ourselves in more and more into koinonia, into partnership, even when it requires our finances. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for Paul. In Jesus' name, amen.